Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Tuesday, October 18th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. New international community calls for cessation of hostilities in Ethiopia Tigray conflict. If Eritrean forces are again able to go back into Tigray, the fear of genocide might occur again. So this is really what is moving the international community with the U.S. leadership. The United States sanctions a dozen Al-Shabaab officials and commanders. A court petition challenges Uganda's controversial new internet law. Liberian President George Weah sets up a rice stabilization task force to ensure the availability of the country's staple food. A call for an investigation into alleged oil thefts in Nigeria. Striking workers bring freight rail and ports to a standstill in South Africa. In last financial year, Transnet declared 5 billion profit. So we are saying let workers benefit from that 5 billion that Transnet has made as a profit. And the first of 10 profiles of the first annual Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. An Ethiopian-born academic says the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, has responded that it is ready to accept and respect an immediate ceasefire. This after the Ethiopian government again on Monday repeated that it is ready to hold peace talks with the TPLF. UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez also said on Monday that the conflict in Ethiopia is spiraling out of control, with violence and destruction reaching alarming levels. He is calling on Ethiopia to end hostilities in the Tigray region and for allied Eritrean forces to immediately withdraw from Ethiopia. Ezekiel Gebesa is professor of history and African studies at Kettering University in the state of Michigan. He tells me the flurry of diplomatic activities for cessation of hostilities is a result of the United States stepping up its involvement. The Ethiopian government offer was conditional. They say that uh, the government must take control of all airports and uh, federal facilities, and it did take over the, the town of uh, Shire. I think that's the reports that I heard. The government also said that they're ready for it, but they will continue operations until they get control of airports, allegedly because what the government is doing is taking defensive measures to protect uh, the sovereignty and territorial integrity because the Tigrayan defense forces are working in collusion with hostile foreign powers. Now, who the hostile foreign powers, the Ethiopian government did not say, how the Tigrayans from within Ethiopia actually are threatening the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ethiopia when it is actually the Ethiopian government forces attacking Tigray from the Eritrean side. So it's a confusing statement to me, to say the least, that uh, they will continue to prosecute the war, but uh, whenever they're ready, they will accept a negotiated and comprehensive settlement. It's not clear to me how these two could continue. At least the government is not ready to stop firing. They continue to prosecute the war until they feel confident that they have the military upper hand to dictate terms to the Tigray Defense Forces. Professor, the last time we spoke, um, we talked about the peace process and the involvement of the African Union. You also mentioned that uh, you thought it was the United States that had the leverage to bring about the peace process. Do you think uh, the movement we are seeing now is the result of that? The diplomatic movement that you see is the result of that, yes. You know, the international community is spooked by the prospects of what would happen if Eritrean forces 
get into Tigray. In November 2020, remember that once the Eritreans were there, they went on a rampage of uh, committing ethnic cleansing. This time what will happen is if Eritrean forces are again able to go back into Tigray, the feared genocide might occur again. So this is really what is moving the international community with the uh, U.S. leadership. Last week, the Ethiopian Minister of Finance and uh, Governor of the National Bank were in Washington to restructure their debt and get access to loans. But that was denied because the United States, probably leading uh, the charge, refused to extend any loans to the Ethiopian government to pressure them to accept the ceasefire. But yes, I do think that the United States or the international community in general, speaking in unison, they have asked the Ethiopian government to stop. The Ethiopian government has basically rejected the immediate cessation of hostilities because they feel like they have the upper hand. Ezekiel Kabisa is an Ethiopian-born professor of history and African studies at Kettering University in the state of Michigan. He was speaking with us from the city of Flint. The United States is sanctioning about a dozen Al-Shabaab officials and commanders accused of facilitating the group's weapons procurement and financial resources. The designations were announced by the U.S. Treasury on Monday. The sanction target Abdullahi Jiri, Al-Shabaab's head of weapons procurement, and Khalif Adali, a businessman and senior member of the group. But how significant are the sanctions? The U.S. Somali service reporter Harun Manroof put that question to Horn of Africa regional analyst Matt Bryding. The most important thing about it is that it demonstrates that the United States government and presumably the Somali federal government are are demonstrating a commitment to a whole-of-government approach to fighting al-Shabaab. So this is the clear sign that um, the battle against al-Shabaab is no longer simply going to be fought militarily on the ground, but that uh, it's going to involve attacks on al-Shabaab's financial networks and also, as we've we've seen from the Somali federal government's appointments, it's going to include ideological, educational components and civic components. And will it be effective? Is it going to work? Well, look, sanctions are... uh, very complicated instrument. You know, obviously sanctioning people, members of al-Shabaab who are in Somalia, don't have foreign bank accounts, don't travel, is not going to have an impact. But it's a very important international signal. And it's also a signal to Somali business people and political people who actually do business with them. And if you look into the sanctions designations carefully, you'll see that some of the individuals named are described as having ties to Somali business figures. They are buying and selling weapons. They're also involved in illicit fisheries, uh, trade, and other types of commerce. And I think this is a warning shot to Somali commercial and political elites that if they do business with these people, they may be next on the list. What do you make of this uh, Yemen connection uh, that al-Shabaab is procuring a lot of weapons from Yemen? I think there's nothing new in this at all. I mean, Yemen has been the main arms market for Somalia for 30 years since the beginning of the civil war. And al-Shabaab has used uh, Yemen as, a, as an arms market uh, ever since it was established. And it's been well documented that the main corridor for commercial arms, including those procured by al-Shabaab, 
is from Yemen via Puntland and then both to the Al-Shabaab units in the Galgala highlands of the borderlands between Puntland and Somaliland and also to the south into Somalia. So this is something that's been known. And again, the important thing is that by identifying individuals by name, those commercial and political elite, particularly in and around Bosasso, involved in the arms trade, are now on notice that if they continue, they're probably going to be lit up by the sanctions program as well. That was Matt Bride, one of Africa regional analysts. He was speaking with viewer Somali service reporter Harun Maruf. In Uganda, media organizations and human rights activists went to court on Monday to file a petition challenging the country's controversial new internet law. Violators of the new law face fines of up to $3,900 U.S. and prison terms of up to seven years. Robert Sempala is executive director of the Human Rights Network for Journalists Uganda and one of the petitioners. He tells me the petitioners are hopeful that the court will grant them a reprieve because the law is very unpopular. There has been a public resentment about the law. Many people have really spoken out against it, mainly those that practice journalism, uh, but also those that are into civil society and looking at uh, human rights as a whole, uh, they're looking at it as uh, one that is really meant to stifle freedom of expression, but also to cushion the leaders from uh, public scrutiny and uh, being held accountable. So there's really been wild reaction against the bill, and I am very certain it's not a popular law. There was a petition in court on Monday. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, there was a petition on Monday challenging uh, the constitutionality of uh, the amendment and let alone the act. It is uh, a move that uh, all of us support. We have uh, had a series of meetings with um, journalists, with um, human rights lawyers, with civil society, and uh, people at large who really feel that uh, freedom of expression is being trapped. So it is uh, where all of us have to run to now because um, we initially went to the Committee of Parliament to convince them that this was not a good law. We uh, indicated to them that it did not serve any purpose, so it should be discarded. It ignored public submissions to a tune of 19. All of them were opposed to the same. We wrote to the president uh, requesting him not to sign uh, this particular law, to reject it, or at least uh, send for improvement of it. He didn't listen to us. And now that he signed, we are waiting for it to be gazetted. And the next course of action certainly is challenging it in the constitutional court. What do you all hope to come out of it? Is it likely that President Museveni can change his mind from this? We don't think the president might change his mind. He's not the type that changes his mind when he's really interested in uh, a law. But uh, we have precedents. For instance, um, there was a time when a member of parliament in the opposition, Honorable Mwanga Kibundi, went to court and challenged the constitutionality of the police giving permission to citizens to assemble and said it was not part of their mandate. So courts listened to him and granted his prayers when he nullified a session in the Police Act which required the police to give permission. So in this case, we really are hopeful that um, given the strong sentiment, uh, the facts on table, the fact that the, the return of other laws that, um, that uh, this bill or this amendment seeks to address 
is some ground for us to move courts to grant our prayers that this is a bad law, brought in bad light, wrongly flamed. Uh, so we have really uh, enough ground to believe that uh, the, the courts will listen to us. Robertson Pala is executive director of the Human Rights Network for Journalists Uganda. He was speaking with us from the capital, Kampala. listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Barton in Washington. Today is Tuesday, October 18th. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. A strike by 36,000 South African freight rail and port workers has entered its second week. The workers are seeking a wage increase for inflation. The strike is costing South Africa's economy an estimated $44 million a day. Vicky Stock reports from Cape Town. Anele Kitty is Deputy Secretary General of the South African Transport and Allied Workers Union, or SATAO. He says that Transnet, the state-owned enterprise responsible for the country's freight rail and port systems, needs to direct more of its profits towards its workers. Transnet workers were, were working during a hard lockdown. And in last financial year, Transnet declared $5 billion profit. So we are saying let workers benefit from that $5 billion that Transnet has made as a profit instead of only the executives. His union joined the United National Transport Union, UNTU, in their demand for double-digit wage increases ranging from 12 to 13 percent. Kitt says the unions are not happy with the 6 percent increase proposed by the Council for Conciliation, Mediation and Arbitration, or CCMA, the body which has been overseeing the talks. Our members are saying uh, they want double digits, but we are saying as leadership, double digits or anything above the inflation rate. We are flexible on that. In July, South Africa's inflation hit a 13-year peak, of 7.8%. Transnet CEO Portia Derby, meanwhile, has been quoted as saying that despite public sentiment that Transnet should pay whatever is required to end the strike, she and other executives have a responsibility to improve the company's finances. She said roughly 66% of the company's operating costs goes to labor, a number she called unsustainable. A Transnet employee today confirmed that a negotiating team was locked in talks at the CCMA but was unable to say when they might issue a statement. The CEO of South Africa's Road Freight Association, Gavin Kelly, said the situation is dire, with several African countries' exports and imports being affected. It can be anything from perishable goods, you know, foodstuffs and fruits and meats and those sorts of things, to bulk types of, of cargoes like coal or iron ore or chrome to machinery parts. It's really anything that is either produced within South Africa and Africa or mined. Professor Bonang Mohale is head of non-profit Business Unity South Africa, which has 67 members, including the Minerals Council of South Africa. This council represents mines in the country, which contribute 50% of Transnet's revenue. Mohale has urged all stakeholders to work together. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has also urged all parties to act in the best interest of the country. Vicky Stark for VOA News, 
Cape Town, South Africa. Liberian President George Mane Weir has set up a rice stabilization task force to ensure the availability of the country's staple food on the market. Rice shortages in Liberia has led to rising tensions with some groups threatening protests. The task force comprises several government ministries and public corporations, including the Ministry of Agriculture. President Weir has instructed the task force to design and execute measures that will always make rice available to consumers. Jenny Cooper is Liberia's agriculture minister. She is currently in Washington, D.C., attending this year's World Bank IMF annual meetings. Minister Cooper tells me that President Weir is revisiting policies that once ensured a staple supply of rice. In the past, from 1968, actually, until 1984, the government had what was called a rice stabilization committee. It was comprised of the Ministry of Finance, of Commerce, and Agriculture. And that committee advised the government on tariffs on imported rice, as well as subsidies for local production. After the rice riots of 1979, The committee continued to function until finally it was disbanded by the PRC government in 1984 when the government made the switch away from subsidizing local production and removing tariffs on imported rice for availability. So 43 years on, 40 years on, it's time that we revisit some of those things and look at how we can keep a stable supply of rice support our local production because we need that for resilience, recovery, for self-reliance. We need that. So we've got to find a, a new balance that's not fully dependent on somebody else to send us rice that we can import. Minister, according to the mandate given by President Weir, this task force is supposed to design and execute measures that will make rice available at all times on the market. What sort of rice is that? Is that imported rice or locally produced? I think it's both. And there will always be a need for both. There's no country that is 100% self-sufficient. Even Nigeria that's doing so well in that. They do have a balance of imports. You have different tastes. And we have generations now that have grown up only knowing imported rice. And so there's taste preferences that you have to take account of. There's price. There's the fact that local production is nowhere near ready to just, you say, okay, we're going to ban imports and we'll just go straight to local production. Local production right now is half a percent of total consumption. And that brings me to my next question, because you are in Washington, D.C., attending the World Bank IMF or annual meetings, and I listened to you during a, a discussion over the weekend. What do you suppose is the solution to this food insecurity that Liberia is having? Well, the solution is multi-pronged, but right now we have an emergency. We have a pipeline problem, a supply problem of rice, both imported and local, because this is the harvest season. So there's no local rice on the market. We've got some issues that we have to deal with. And, you know, the president, in his wisdom now, is making sure that things are as stable as possible for the population. Minister Cooper, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk with you always. Thank you, James. That was Jenny Cooper, Liberia's Agriculture Minister, speaking with us from Washington, D.C., where she is attending this year's World Bank IMF annual meetings.
The United States Chamber of Commerce's U.S. Africa Business Center is covering its first annual Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups. VOA is working as a media partner with the African Business Center on this initiative. Out of 17,000 candidates in 50 countries in Africa, the top 10 finalists are being decided. And for the next two weeks, we'll bring you a look at each one. We begin this morning with Amadago Organicawe William, whose startup Valley B leverages tech to design and manufacture sensor enabled beehives that help farmers monitor their bees remotely. My name is Emadago Ogenekewe William. I am 23 years old and I am from Jos, Nigeria. I am the CEO and co-founder of Valibi. I and my team applied to the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition because we saw the massive impact it will have in our product. We saw financial opportunity, the mentorship, and also the strategic partnership we can get from being part of this competition. Being one of the top 10 finalists in this competition means a lot to me personally and also to our startup because this would give us the opportunity to showcase our work and our technology to the world. This would have a massive impact on the climate and also on local beekeepers. Our product is a smart hive that is IoT enabled and sensor enabled that constantly maintains the optimal temperature and humidity that bee needs to produce honey. With our product, farmers can increase their honey yield and actually have a great impact on their local family and also to the environment. Our project will have tremendous impact in the life of local farmers and beekeepers here in Nigeria and also in Africa because we are producing a product that will help them increase their honey yield and also maximize their profit. And as a country like Nigeria imports over $2 billion worth of honey per year, we are empowering these farmers to cash in in this market and also make the maximum of profit. Our project also have impact in the pharmaceutical and medical industry in that honey is a very important raw material for drug production. The first thing we will do if we win this competition is to acquire more equipment and raw material to expand our business to two more states in Nigeria, Kaduna and Nasarawa states. That was Emandago Organic Kaiway William of Nigeria. His startup called Valley B leverages tech to design and manufacture sensor enabled beehives that help farmers monitor their bees remotely. And that's it for this Tuesday, October 18th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for joining us this morning. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Barton Washington wishing you will have an amazing Tuesday. Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on The Voice of America. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. 
host of VOA's Encounter. Join me and two advocates from the world of politics, public policy, or academia debating critical and controversial issues of our day, bringing depth, perspective, and insight to the world around us. You can listen to Encounter on Saturdays and Sundays. That's Encounter every Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. VOA brings you the best in African music on the African beat. African beat showcases the latest and the greatest of contemporary African music, from bobo music to hip life, bonga flavor to sukus, Afrobeat and dumbolo and makosa to kwaito. The African beat on VOA has it all. And it's happening right here, Mondays through Fridays at 0905 and 2005 UTC, right after the international news.